You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island, to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial. Streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa, and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. And we are still in the throes of the pandemic and stage four restrictions lockdown. So a lot of us, most of us, are doing our show remotely from home, and I'm one of them. So there's quite a few challenges um, in broadcasting, so just bear with us. And just tune in and and listen to our show, as today is going to be quite action-packed. First up on the show, we're going to be speaking with DT. DT is a First Nations warrior and activist and has been campaigning with um, also the, the um, First Nations women as well in, in Melbourne, Victoria, and he'll tell us what land he's on very soon. And we'll talk about the campaign for the sacred trees. For quite a few years now, it's been a very ill-understood campaign and the government has been terribly unfair in not only negotiating treaty but also having a look at why are these trees being wanting to be cut down to put in a highway. No treaty, no trees, no treaty. So we'll be speaking with DT very soon. We've had him on before. And then after that, we'll be speaking with Tabitha Lean, who is a regular, also a regular guest on our show. And Tabitha Lean will be speaking to us about her lived experience of prison, and hopefully she's going to be sharing some of her poetry with us. She's a First Nations woman from Adelaide, and she'll also be speaking to us about what land she's from. We were originally going to be speaking with a detainee from Cuba who's imprisoned in Perth. But there have been some problems um, about with him coming on, and so we will speak with with him next week. So we will now cross over to DT. I really am not understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons 
are an integral part of a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside, our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. And in case you've just tuned in, this is the Doing Time show. And we've got DT on the line. Welcome to the program. It's great to have you. How are you? Oh, it's been uh, a, a bit of a challenge with this pandemic. We've actually been doing a lot of work with ab- not just Aboriginal people, but looking at Aboriginal deaths in custody and also looking at the pandemic in prison. So it's yeah. been um, pretty challenging. It has been very challenging. Oh, so DT, I'm wondering if you could just tell us what land you're from first. Uh, I'm from uh, a number of um, a number of tribes, but in particular, um, I'm on uh, I'm, I'm from I'm, I'm on Jabarong country, um, and that's where the first part of uh, my bloodlines uh, descend from. So it's where the first part of bloodlines started to flow, um, and that's where I'm at the moment. So yeah, speaking on behalf of um, Jabarong uh, custom and law and. Um, and the rest of uh, my people, but um, not really speaking on behalf of my people, they will have their their, their time to you know have a say and and whatnot. Um, I'm just purely just sitting on country and um, sitting within in the in the law of um, Japarong um, and making sure that um, Japarong law. And, and Japarong custom is something that is not of um, tokenism, something that comes to the forefront. And it is coming to the forefront. Tokenism? What do you mean by that? Well, when I look around my country, um, in Japarong in particular, um, yeah, I go down the main street and, and even just going around my country, there's, there's no, um, you know, welcome to country, Japarong signs, there's... there's you know, there's no. Yeah. I, I really don't see many of my mob around the country. I don't see um, much information around um, the sacredity of our country and, and and what our country's all about. I see a lot of um, foreign foreign history um, that's that's um, imprinted um, in your face all over the place. Um, and but. More importantly, when, when you talk about Jabarong, and, you, and I ask you know, many locals around the country here what they know about the Jabarong tribe, there's, there's no, no knowledge. Um, and the knowledge is, is very, very, um, very bare. And so I look at that and I say, well, you know, we, we, if we want to move forward, we want to go forward, we need to... Um, this is one part of, part of the law where we need to get the language, we need to get... Um, the knowledge, the custom, the culture of, of Japarong um, within activation, within something that's uh, activated every year, and it's something that that, that the whole 6,600 square kilometres of Japarong um, knows, and something that it feels. Um, 
whether it be in ceremony uh, yearly um, at a certain time of year during certain um, ceremony, certain seasonal change and, and and during certain times of the year. Um, that's something that we we want to be. We were really working hard to get back in, in the Japarong. Um and right now, you know, having having our country be destroyed within the cultural realm is, is not something that we see um, within within that moving forward. So, um, but also we're also looking at, at the whole the whole the whole situation as, as a whole, and it's you know you got treaty going on. You got, which is meant to be a big, um, a really big historic uh, moment in time, a historic uh, uh, sit-down agreement between two opposing um, peoples for for one 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 set of people who who hold the sovereignty properly, uh, who have the dominion and autonomy right to, to give another set of people or, or their government um, consent to be here. Um, and when you know when, when that's happening, while that's happening, you know, selling our country and and then wanting to put a highway through a very 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 significant part of uh, our country here, which is in the the creation, the birthing part of that, um, while we're trying to rebirth uh, and revitalise our institutions, our, our customary law, um, our, our land, um, and also also um, ourselves within our country. It really is an ongoing problem and really quite terrible, isn't it, GT? Well, this is still happening. There's no resolution. Well, we, 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 see, we see a resolution for our country here in, here in Japarong. I can't speak, once again, I can't speak on, be, on behalf of anyone sure. else's country because I don't speak on behalf of their mobs, um, their country for them and, you know, their law and whatnot. But we see for our country here in Japarong, um we see going into... into Sovereign tribal governance um, to finally um, get this get this right because under this Australian law and whatnot, when you look at the law, which is the the, the, the legality of anything, their constitution is their main uh, their main uh, piece of paper or their main book that they're relying upon for their law to be here and for everyone to be civilized and be governed and everything like that. We're not actually in that system. We're not in their law. Their law was made up and it said that we couldn't be in their law. So if it's saying that we can't be in their law and then we look at the UN Declaration on, on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, Articles 4 and 5, both state that we can revitalise and go back to our governing systems and whatnot. If we want to do that, we have the choice to do that. And if we don't want to participate in the state's uh, cultural cultural values and, and, and whatever else. We don't, we don't have to participate in the cult, social, economical or um, cultural life in any way, shape or form if we don't want to. We, we're not in their law. We're not in their, not in their constitution. The only way they've got us in their law is if we're holding that Australian identification. That's exactly right, now, DT. We don't That's hold exactly that Australian right. identification. We've given that back. That's their issue. That belongs to them. We're going back to revitalise our, 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 our systems, our, our, our way, and, and we, we want to do that without being intruded upon once again within within our civilisation and within our living. Absolutely. And, and no, within our reclamation right. of our lands. It's true what you're saying, and I, I think what would be helpful at this stage... I mean, what you're saying is helpful, but what I'm saying is what would be useful at this point, because you've been here quite a few times on our show... 
but it's been a yeah. long time. Yeah. And in case new listeners have just tuned in, I'm wondering if you could just explain to listeners what happened with the sacred trees, where you are now, and yeah. also just give us an update about what's going on. Can you explain that for us? Okay. So um, there was a situation uh, between um, uh, an Aboriginal corporation by the name of Martin, um, who, and I, I will say this um, in full respect, I don't, I don't hold any grudges as to what's what's transpired, what's gone on. Sure. Um, it is what it is. We're just here trying to rectify the situation. Uh, but we also are, we also are tribe tribe members. We are a part of the tribe. So at some point, we we will need to sit down with each other and and move forward as a tribe. Um, but. But moving forward, um, yeah, so there was a situation between Martang and, and local government or, or, or the state um, and to um, sign, sign off on, on, on some parts of country which they deemed uh, non-culturally non, non significant um, within their processes and within their cultural heritage management plans and whatnot. Um, and so there was agreements made between them and... and uh, Vic Roads and the government to to go ahead and for for a highway to be built, and for some very very sacred and significant parts of country to to be destroyed. Um, now those significant parts of country are some very very sacred trees. Um, some are directional trees which are uh, planted with within placenta, so placenta from mother and and a particular seed fiddleback tree. Um, planted together, and that becomes an ancestral tree, um, a directional tree, or and for, for that young spirit that was born, for that young baby that was born, for them never to be, to be lost in the land, um, and for them always to be brought home with their spirit and whatnot. And then there's some other marker trees which which mark territory and and, and mark um, mark possession. And there's also some other scar trees that also um, that mark, you know, coming into very, very sacred parts of of women's country, um, that identify that it's, you know, there, there is, you know, women's country there, and, and there is um, some birthing camps and whatnot. And there also there's also some very, very significant um, cooking and smoking trees, and there's also some other very, very significant um, birthing trees as well. So, but um, to relating to all of that, you know, what what what. What everything that relies, all those trees and, and everything rely upon, is, is some very, very sacred land. And so, you know, those trees are at the moment still standing, and you're all there, still looking after them. You're still there at the site. Yes, these, um, yes, they're, they're still here. They're, they're, they're not going anywhere. Um, the tribe haven't. The, the, once again, I'll say the tribe haven't given permission um, to to the Australian uh, government to to touch any part of of our country. We understand that um, Australian Australian uh, Aboriginal representatives who, who uh, are uh, attached to an Australian corporation as such um, have, have have given consent, which are traditional owners uh, who, who are not standing in in the tribal point of point of view and in the tribal realm, uh, holding you know who are holding those Australian Australian identification. So. There's, um, there's that part happening, but then there's also um, so there's some there's some uh, some some of our mob uh, in in the Australian I guess in the Australian high courts that were in the Australian high courts going through that particular um, system. 
are trying to get um, uh, Australian agents and its constituents to to do the right thing and and to do their jobs. Um, that's been unsuccessful so far um, on on many many different attempts. Um, so they're just I think they're going through that process. And then there's 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 the process on which what we're going through here on the land, which is creating that sovereign tribal government, um, and 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 uh, accessing our right through through the um, like I say the um, the United Nations declarations on, on the rights of Indigenous peoples. Um, we're also going through and and just um, just you know stating to a lot of the strays agents within within its system. Um, of, of its particular powers and whatnot, because um, obviously they don't know their jurisdictional powers, so that would be their Australian police and whatnot. Exactly. Um, and we've been asking questions like um, we've been asking lots of questions like um, uh, the state, the state, and their own, you know, their own rules. You know, Chapter Thirty Eight, dealing with violence, extortion by threat. Four oh nine, definition of robbery. Any person who steals anything and at or immediately before or immediately after the time of stealing it, uses and threatens to use actual violence to any person or property in order to obtain the thing stolen or to prevent or overcome resistance to it is being is to its being stolen is said to be guilty of robbery. Absolutely. Then, now, then we ask then we ask the question in Schedule One of the Criminal Code, eighteen ninety nine, part six of offences relating to property and contract. Chapter exactly. 41, receiving property stolen or fraudulently obtained and like offences. Part A, a thing that has been obtained by way of an act constituting an indictable offence. So receiving tainted property, a person who receives tainted property and has reason to believe it's tainted property commits a crime. And the, the penalty of that crime is 14 years imprisonment. Now, what what, what we need to understand here is... is we're not assuming anything. We're going by we're going by their we're going by their law, yeah. So their law is what is what gives them the power to do whatever they're doing, yeah. So we're going by their law, and their law says, yeah. Uh-huh. Their law says in the Pacific Island Nations Protection Act 1875, which I don't think it hasn't been amended, hasn't been changed in any way, shape, or form. Okay. Power of Her Majesty to exercise jurisdiction over British subjects in the islands of the Pacific Ocean. Office of of High Commissioner. It shall be lawful for Her Majesty to exercise power and jurisdiction over her subjects within any islands and places in the Pacific. So that doesn't that doesn't say anything about us. Now it says now it says saving the right. I know what you're saying. Yeah. No, that's it, and people do need to know that, and that's very, very important. Now, DT, on NITV News recently, I believe that there was a statement um, by the the warriors there, by, um, I believe it's one of the women, Sissy, Sissy Eileen Austin. Yeah, Sissy, yep. Yeah, and she talks... I'd love to speak to her sometime on air if she'd be interested. I'm not sure whether yeah, she would be. But I'm, I'm, I'm not too sure. I'll have to ask her. It doesn't her. have to be to. today. But I suppose yeah. I just wanted to ask you, because she, she, along with the other warriors, I'm sure you were included in this, wrote a statement about the Heritage Protection Embassy. Now, that's, yeah. you're all a part of that, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. And can you, can you tell us what that is? I mean, basically, you're, you've got, you're um, promoting an act of cultural protection 
she says. It's well, quite not well, like no well, other. Anywhere, anywhere in the world, you go anywhere in the world, they've got embassies that protect that protect That's the right. rights of, of peoples and their, and their cultures and customs. So but we've got our... embassy we've got a, is, is actually there at, at the trees, isn't it? You're actually there yes, at the moment? Yes, that's Yes. Yeah, and so yes, that's in the state's yes. western district, isn't it? Yes, that's up just outside of uh, a place known uh, inside of Australia's construct as, as Ararat, but um, in the landmass of Japurong, obviously, as... Um, as um, yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's good, you know, and, and I suppose the reason why... Sorry to interrupt, but the reason why I wanted to ask you, DT, is just to... What you've said is fantastic. It's, it's relevant. But I just want to know how can, in, during this pandemic in particular, how can the community support you with this? With well, this you need to come in the country. Um, we, we, we always we always love our, our essential caregivers and our, and our essential uh, brothers and sisters of support. We always look look after our. We need, we need you know always um, looking for uh, and accepting um, our, our I guess our essential. Workers and our essential um, supports in terms of medics and and supplies and all those sorts of things, um, because obviously us, you know, going outside the construct of Australia, um, there's certain things within the construct that we, you know, we we, we can't access with, in terms of um, um, in terms of the medical systems and 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 whatnot, um, because I've linked all my Australian identification. Um, I'm not I'm not in, inside the, the, the system of Australia, so I don't even yeah. have bank accounts. Yeah. So. DT, it's, it's been great having you, but just also just to ask you, has there been a recent decision made by the Federal Mister, Minister of the Environment, Susan Lee, yeah. to reject the application to protect country under the Heritage Protection Act? Yes, there has. So there was two particular decisions that come out um, just recently. So the Victorian Ombudsman, um, has decided to conceal um, the fact of of, of um, continuating, I guess, the government in exile of Australia um, to conceal the facts and, and to conceal, I guess, the continuation of usurping the rights of, of our sovereign people. So they've decided not to protect um, and, and not to, which really for us here outside the construct of Australia doesn't really bother us. That's for the Australian system and the Australians that you know want to deal with that stuff. That's fine. I get it. Yeah, but it's still good to talk about it, just so that yeah, people know. It definitely is. It definitely is because this, this, you know, it, what what Australia is trying to do is it's trying to radically um, bind us into the constitution, but without without you know without binding us into it. So it, what it has to do, it, it it has to get our consent. So if it gets our voluntary consent to go into it, yeah. We, well, well, we go into it, yeah. But That's at the right. same time, it has to act in good faith. Yeah? If it doesn't yeah. act in yeah. good faith and it continues to manipulate and conceal the facts, yeah, and which what conceal the facts mean, which means hiding facts that it it, it, sh- it should have it should have acted in good faith and it should it should have um, had full disclosure. So full disclosure means all information is available, nothing's hidden, nothing's kept off the table, and it hasn't done that. No. Hasn't That's done that, right. and Absolutely. so us trying, to do that, us trying to do that inside the inside the contract of Australia, inside Australia's court systems, who who are the ones who are continuing to conceal the facts and continue to, to usurp our rights and continue to help Australia's law. Well, it's not going to help us. So we have to we have to build our own law system. We have to 
we have to activate our law system. We have to build our own courts and, and push courts and things like that, you know, and our law grounds and things like that, so that we can actually start to action this law that we talk about here, here in our particular yeah. part of the country. And that all comes back to the rights of, 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 the, of Indigenous peoples. You know, the, the United Nations Declaration, for example, on the rights of Indigenous peoples, that yep. contravenes what's happening there that, about the trees being possibly taken. Yep. Australia's but, a but signatory of that. But we have to understand, yeah, we have yes. to drop that legal personality. Yes. So we have to drop that legal personality, yeah, and we yeah. and we have to go. We have to take up the tribal personality. Yes. Yeah. It sits outside the construct. What they what they've exactly. got you doing at the moment? They've got you as the traditional owner, legal personality, right. and the traditional owner word, yeah, actually means you're giving away your your inherent your your sovereign your dominion your your lawful right. You're giving away your right. That's what traditional owner actually means. So we have to stop using that partic- those particular words. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I so see that's where it gets saying. us in trouble because we we assume that we assume where where something means something, but legally it has a different definition. So we have to understand Absolutely. the legal definition as opposed to the assumption. But that's you know what DT. But that's what I'm trying to do in the interview is to highlight the contradictions and and the te- the the genocide. And the yep. forced assimilation. Do you see what yep. I'm trying to say here? That you know, Aboriginal law is Aboriginal law, and it's and what you're saying is it's not being it's not being practiced. It's not being respected. No, nope. because their system doesn't allow that. Their system doesn't allow you any right. time. Their system doesn't allow you to go back to your cultural lands. Like their system hasn't allowed for our birthing grounds to continue. It's yeah, disgusting. our women should have the right. Our women should have the right, first and foremost, to go back to those grounds. And if they choose that they want to go back to giving birth and doing all that sort of stuff, then they should be able to have that option. Yes, they shouldn't have exactly cars right. driving past, screaming out all sorts of racist, vile things that it really it has no jurisdiction to even interfere with. No, it's, it's true, DT. But my worry is what's going to happen now, especially with this pandemic now in full swing, there are restrictions on all the warriors. And how are we going to unite to stop this from happening, to stop the desecration of the trees? Because well, it's going it to come stop down, that bulldozing. It's going to come down to a, it's going to come down to a choice, yeah, as as it always does, and as it always will, yeah, because we because we have to understand who we're dealing with here, and we're dealing with very very radical, yeah, very very harsh, and very very dominant uh, systems and institutions. That know that when it, that know that if you don't do as it says, it's gonna it's gonna commit harm. So it's gonna come down now, to. I think we've just lost DT. Not I'm sure still what's here. going on here. I'm um, still here. But we were talking about the sacred trees and looking at. Uh, he's actually at the site now, so I'm. So, I, I would say that the reception is out. But we will be speaking with Tabitha very soon. But basically, at the moment, we're talking. We were talking about the sacred trees and about how how we can actually help the warriors and actually go onto country. But I'm sure we'll continue this discussion next show. And now we'll be going on now to Tabitha. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM.
algorithms have become these gatekeepers to opportunity. They're already deciding who gets hired, who gets health care, how long a prison sentence someone serves. And what I didn't realize is that a lot of these algorithms haven't been vetted for accuracy. We don't even know how accurate they are. They often run on what's popular, and we all know what's popular isn't always good. And they haven't been vetted for racial bias and for gender bias. I had no idea the scope of invasive surveillance, the, the preciseness to which they can predict our behavior, and how vulnerable all of us can be to sort of predatory practices because of these algorithms. And so we need some protections in place as citizens. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio at 5 a.m. on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Time show, and I believe we—I'm not sure what happened with DT there, but we will have to speak to him again about the trees um, next week. And I'm hoping we have Tabitha now on the line. Hello, Tabitha. Hello, Marissa. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to have you. We had a little bit of a glitch, technical difficulty there, but uh, <laughs> we'll be able to speak with DT there. We were just speaking with one of the warriors here. Um, in Victoria about the desecration of sacred trees. I'm not sure if you know about that campaign. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? It really is, Tabitha. Now, it's lovely to have you... Sorry? I was just saying people have stood strong for so long protecting sites. Um, And I think all of us across the country owe them a lot for, for putting their bodies and lives on the line to protect these spaces. Yeah, look, it's 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 quite a difficult situation it's in particular because one of the things that DT and I were talking about, and he's, he's one of the activists there, mm. is that, you know, he was discussing Aboriginal, Aboriginal law and mm. I was actually really trying to talk about the contradictions that happen mm. between Aboriginal law and also the, you know, the colonisers as well. So mm. it was extremely difficult because I was trying to actually get an update of yeah. what is going to happen because they're going to be bulldozing those trees if we don't do something about oh. it. And so, I think the extraordinary thing is that while we've got our people putting their bodies on the line to protect spaces, instead of the state seeing them as protectors, sacred warriors to protect our, our sacred sites, they see them as protesters. And, of exactly course, right. there's an element of protest, but it's actually critical to that is about protection and it's just another way that our mob get criminalised. You know, we see that kind of behaviour of protecting things as some sort of deviant behaviour against the state and actually it's not. It's what we were born to do. It's our ancestral obligations. Indeed it is and you know, I I think that there's a lot of pain and suffering that's, that's actually happening and it's really difficult I think for these particular warriors to speak on air um, mm. and, and give coherent updates, but just because of all the all the stuff that's that's going on, and it's it's very difficult. Yeah, but I'm and sure it's we'll have you back on that. next week. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah, so that'll be good. 
Now, um, Tabitha, you've been on our show. You've been a regular contributor of our show for quite a few months now, and it's been really lovely to have you. And I suppose I just wanted to have you back on just to see what you wanted to talk about today and see if you, you can share some of your poems. Yeah, look, I have got a poem I could share, and I also wondered if we could talk a little bit about re-entry from prison. It's something I've been talking a little bit about, and I figured that your listeners, both people who have been incarcerated and those coming home and those families welcoming people home, because it's actually a really tricky time um, coming out of prison, and it's hard on both the person returning as well as the family. And so I guess I wanted to raise a few things that people could be a bit aware of if that was Useful. Oh, that'd be great. Go ahead. Yeah, look, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about this because, as your listeners might know, if they've heard me on here before, I am now just over 12 months out of prison. I'm now on parole, so I'm off of home detention. But I really noticed that coming home is more difficult than you expect. I think I thought, well, I did two years, I didn't do 15, so it will be really easy. But I think any time in prison, has the capacity to institutionalise you in some way, shape or form. And so coming home, I realised that while my life had been on hold inside, everyone else's around me had marched on. So there was all these sort of adjustments that I've had to make. And I'm still finding 12 months out that I'm, I'm having to make continual adjustments as of my family. For example, um, I have three children. So yep. I've found that I either under-parent or I over-parent or both. It's really hard to find my place as mum again and I've struggled I guess with the newfound independence my kids have and also with the feeling and questioning of whether I have a legitimate right to parent given that I had that absence and I think a it's right something that we yeah well I think when you've been away for two years and you've you've, you've messed see. up you've made mistakes and you come back and you feel like do I have the right to come out here and say to my kids, well, you can't do that or you, you, can, you oh. can do this. Or you can't. It's a really tricky thing. Yeah. And it's something that we're not talking about very openly is the re-entry issues, particularly for mothers um, yes. and how people adjust um, coming home. So there's these sort of parenting issues. There's also this really interesting thing that's happened just recently coming off of home detention is I found I've had real difficulty making decisions. And I think that this happens because after a stretch of time of not being able to exercise any agency, let alone make a simple decision, it's kind of a rough road to recover from. And this is something that we don't support people with um, and we don't talk to them about when you're coming out of prison, there's all these changes that are happening and that you're all of a sudden going to be in charge of your life and being able to make decisions. And while I was inside, I had all these plans. I was like, when I get out, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And then I got out and I, I kind of can't find my way to do things. Oh. It's a really weird thing. Um, yeah. And I think the other thing is that how you look at your family can change. As I said, their life has moved on while you were inside um, and yours was on hold. So finding your space in their life is tough because you always look at some of your family and feel like you don't really know them anymore. Um, and I just wanted to raise those things today because I think we talk a lot about abolition and abolishing the prison industrial complex, but sometimes we don't focus on the really intimate harms that prison does. And we forget that even though we're talking about abolishing systems, we're doing that because the people trapped within those systems are humans. So we lose that kind of human element when we're talking sort of systemic and institutional change. Um, and I just, I feel also that 
not enough lived experience. People are sharing their experience because we often don't get the platform. So I'm very grateful to 3CR and yourself, Marissa, for, for giving me the platform to talk about these things. But I feel like yeah. there's not enough out there. And I'm hoping that listeners who have people returning home or who are formerly incarcerated would know some of these feelings and some of these difficulties they're having post-release are actually really normal. And it's, it's something that we all need to kind of talk about and normalise some of this stuff. Because um, there's really very little doubled. support services. Yeah. What was that? Um, and I think the other thing I found is that um, people should expect that intimacy or affection with us yes. is really quite hard on return. And um, I talk a little bit about this kind of when you're inside the lack of affection or human touch, you know, hugs from your kids you're not getting or a kiss from your kids, that sort of thing. But then when you come home, inside that's all you've craved. But sometimes when you come home... But, it's it's not as simple as that. So I kind of cycle through moments of wanting human touch to despising it, to fearing it, back to craving it. And I cycle through all of that depending on the sort of traumas that I'm processing that day from prison. Um, and that's something that I think our loved ones who've had people in prison don't quite understand. So that's just a couple of things. Um, the other really important thing I wanted to say is that coming home and returning home for loved ones or the person returning is... You, you likely will hate the state and despise authority. For example, when I'm in the line at McDonald's getting my kid a happy meal, I see the police behind me and all, you experience all these emotions of pang, panic, anger, revulsion, rage, fear, anxiety. And it's all kind of normal because agents of the state have brutalised you. It's okay to feel those emotions. Anyway, they're just a few things, but I just wanted to sort of put them out there because we just don't talk enough about these returning home issues, the really intimate returning home issues. Yeah, It's actually very true, and I certainly don't hear... I do not hear topics like this discussed in the media apparatus. No, not at all. And, and I think there's a certain level of shame as well for us speaking about it. I, I've been speaking about it a lot this week in different sort of forums because I've I've realised that I've even held on to a bit of that shame so I've not wanted to come out and say look I'm actually really struggling parenting because I've felt this kind of well this is all you wanted to do was get home to your kids Tabitha like what's wrong with you but I think it's this the damage that the carceral state does to us prison is violent it's brutal it's unsafe and it absolutely damages and changes you on a molecular level so finding sort of solid ground when you come out is really tricky thing. And I think we need to be having much more conversations about the sort of emotional and practical supports that people returning home need, as well as families adjusting to that as well. Absolutely. And you touched on support services just before, Tabitha. Mm. Can you talk more about that or the lack of? Yeah, sure. Look, there's there's a real lack of support services across this country, but particularly in South Australia. A lot of the services that are running are specifically designed for men that fit women in sort of in spaces where they can, but there are no real dedicated services for women. Um, we also don't have a service um, that works specifically with children whose parents are incarcerated. There's a couple of kind of support services that provide some um, financial assistance or, you know, sort of emergency food parcels, that sort of thing, but no one that act actively works with the school systems or parents in, and grandparents who are caring for children who, of parents who are incarcerated to really adjust to that lifestyle. There's, it's, there's a sort of real lack of understanding and invisibilising of the issues children of the incarcerated face. 
But certainly what I was surprised at is the absolute lack of support for us returning home. I um, I couldn't even get on priority housing. I was homeless. I would have come out to homelessness from prison. I couldn't even get on priority housing in the state. I was put on Category 3, which is about a 15 to 20-year wait. There was no one that could help me find a house for myself and my kids. I literally did that from my prison cell in my phone, 10-minute phone calls per day. Um, and I had my dad sort of trying to help me ring around places because not very very many real estate agents want to rent to someone who has a criminal record, let alone someone returning fresh from prison. And then I finally got out and there was a lack of even support around me. My dad lives in the country. I don't have for the family locally. So any sort of practical assistance, particularly when you're on home detention and you're actually restricted from going out, so even getting a loaf of bread to make kids lunch. You know, you're not allowed to go down to the shop to do that. So there's a whole range of real practical issues that people, particularly women, are suffering in this state and there's just no support services available and nor is there the impetus within government to fund those support services because the reality is we like to punish people. We like to lock them up and throw away the key. We don't want to think about what they might need coming out and we certainly don't think they deserve any more assistance when they're coming out. But it's a really critical time when people come out that those first few weeks of the potential for them to reoffend just to get back into prison or reoffend because they breach their conditions because they're associating with people that they might be prevented from doing so simply because they have no one else to associate with. Um, and particularly for Aboriginal people, um, when you come out of prison, the condition is that you can't speak to or sort of socialise with anyone with a criminal record. And given the over-criminalisation of our community, it actually cuts off a load of our family members and our community members. So it creates this kind of isolation and loneliness within our own community. And we're just not talking enough about this. And, I mean, I feel that I've been neglect neglectful in it as well because I'm talking really big picture stuff all the time around abolition and why it needs to happen. And sometimes I forget there's these kind of daily struggles that criminalised people, and particularly criminalised women and mothers, are dealing with on a daily basis. Absolutely. And, and the other thing is, too, and I think you and I have touched on this, you know, at other times when you've come on, is in regards to the fact that a lot of women in prison... A lot of women have been put in and criminalised because of domestic violence mm -hmm. or because perhaps they're taking the rap for a partner, mm -hmm. you know, um, for drug charges. Mm -hmm. And often women have, are bearing the brunt of what their men have done and cover up mm. for their men. Absolutely. And there is no sort of support or counselling to support you to enter into safe and healthy relationships. Um, and that's absolutely something I think that needs to happen. I avoid relationships now because I don't feel like I can trust my judgment because I've made so many mistakes. But the other interesting thing is that we know the statistics around women suffering at the hands of men in terms of domestic violence, child abuse, rape, sexual assault. And yet what we do is we place women into another violent relationship, but this time with the state. So it's a relationship that relies on control, manipulation. Someone is monitoring and surveilling your every move. You're asking permission to do things. You are strip searched going into prison. You are urine tested at parole meetings with someone watching you go to the toilet. There's all these constant assaults 
that the state perpetrates onto women who are already have been victims and or survivors of violence in their life. Um, it's a really interesting thing and something that I think needs addressing is looking at how are we, how are we supporting women within the system and outside of it and, and are our support services informed by some sort of you know, trauma response that we um, could be modifying what we're doing? Because certainly I find it traumatic. Every single interaction I have with the state is traumatic. Who looked after your children when you were in prison? Yeah, they, um, they, my dad. So um, my daughter moved to the country with my dad and my eldest son had just gotten into university, so he went into a university boarding house. And my middle son um, already had a scholarship to a school and we sort of transferred that into a boarding scholarship. And that was all really tough. It was really tough on my dad. He was 65 and had become a parent again of three kids, all in separate spaces, and one that was living full-time with him. It was tough on the kids being separated, so there were three of them in a different space. Um, it was really hard on them all. Um, and I was really conscious of this being something that I had done. You know, I had sort of brought this upon my family but I worked really hard while I was in there to maintain contact with my kids and to be relevant in their life. I wrote to them every day and I rang every day. But the prison phone system is crazy. It's, um, you know, outside you can get a mobile phone and it's like $30 unlimited calls a month. In prison I was spending $4.80 for a 10-minute phone call a day to my daughter. Okay. Now when you're only earning $5 a day, $4.80 on a phone call is huge. Um, so what it means is that you kind of, don't buy yourself any snacks or anything in the yeah. any commissary items. Um, and you're also relying on family to send money in. But it's really important to have that connection to home when you're inside. Um, and the kids need it. They deserve it because you know, you're their parent. It's, it's, it's a really odd thing when I hear people saying, oh, this mother doesn't deserve, you know, she committed a crime, she doesn't deserve to be able to have contact with the kids or visits with the kids. And it's like, it's actually, so judgmental well. and harsh. Totally. And what about the kids? Like, you have to centre the mother in this if you're that inhumane. Centre the kids and they deserve that contact. But again, in South Australia right now, the prisons are closed again. They opened up for, I think it was a week and a half. Yep. Um, so kids got to have visits, but they've closed again due to fears of COVID. So again. families, yeah, again. And, um, you know, it means that kids are back to having Zoom visits with their families, which means they're not getting a hug from mum or dad. But even worse, if you don't have the internet at home or a device or a laptop, you can't actually Zoom with your parents. So this is a time, again, where I just really encourage people to stand up and call on the government to decarcerate. We should be having compassionate releases from prison right now. We're in the middle of a pandemic and we just keep sort of cycling through different ways. And we've had a couple of scares um, in the prisons here in South Australia, which haven't been reported on, but have come via people in prison, information where certain wings have been locked down. Um, at the moment, there's two whole women's units locked down. And um, that's extraordinary because those people are sitting ducks for all the chaos that COVID can rain down upon them with little access to good health care, certainly unreliable health care. It must be a scary time in there. It is so important, isn't it, to reduce the number of imprisoned Aboriginal people or to, to imbuce, uh, reduce all prisoners 
But mm. in particular, mm. and mm. There, there is a Royal Commission, or there was a Royal Commission, aiming to reduce the number of imprisoned Aboriginal people, which was conducted in 1991. Mm. And since that time, it's risen by 148%. Absolutely. And the crazy thing is that Royal Commission was to to look at how can we prevent deaths in custody. Now, what we know about what causes deaths in custody is imprisoning or, or I guess, criminalising Aboriginal people. There is so much that we could do to change the system, policies and practices that would stop the criminalisation of our people from a very young age. But we don't do it. We hold multiple reforms, uh, inquiries. I mean, there's another inquiry going through New South Wales Parliament right now. And it's like we have done this 150 million times. We know what the issues are, but we need real structural and systemic change. We need a change in attitude and we need to change the sort of direction of what this country regards as justice because it's not serving our people and worse, it's killing our people. Yeah, it, it, indeed it is, and it, it really, I don't know, and I'm so glad you, you mentioned the pandemic too, Tabitha, because that really does play a crucial role, and each show that, mm-hmm. I've, been, that I've been doing since the pandemic started, it's so important to, to talk about things in the context of the coronavirus and how mm. it's affecting people in prison. Absolutely, and I think... I think we have these kind of flurries of action and concern from the broader community, particularly non-criminalised people. But what we need is sustained concern. We need people to consistently say black lives matter and black lives inside matter. And if we really care about black lives inside, we would be seriously looking at how we can decarcerate. What we know about COVID right now is that people with chronic conditions are at a higher risk. Now, multi-morbidity from chronic disease is normative among the Aboriginal prison population. Our people are absolutely at a higher risk of death from COVID while they're sitting in a cell, not being able to uh, physically distance or access hygiene products or access to good health care. I mean, healthcare inside is severely underfunded, understaffed and without access to Medicare items it's subpar health. And I can't imagine being in there right now. I have two chronic conditions and a heart condition. And if I was in there, I'd be absolutely panicked about if that swept through the prison. Because the people that will bring it in are the prison officers. They will be the unwitting smugglers of the disease inside and then back out into community because they're coming in and out every day. We've had the visits cease, so there's no visitors. It's, it's really about prison staff coming in and out. But to me, the fact that we have had not one compassionate release across in prison in in this entire country speaks volumes about the disposability of human lives inside. While the aged care facilities, while it's important to talk about aged care facilities, Mm. I feel that the, the prison issues are very, very sadly and grossly neglected. Mm-hmm. in the media. Mm. And indeed, the support in prison for the pandemic. And you're right. You know, we, we need to decarcerate. Absolutely. 
I mean, and, and there's really simple things that we could start with. This could have been a staged. Many of us put together sort of decarceration plans and sent them into ministers, making suggestions of at least let's one we we really should have been releasing youth at, immediately out of prison into homes where it was safe and appropriate. We could have been releasing all people on remand. There is no reason someone should die in jail at any time, let alone someone who's not even been convicted of a crime. We could have transitioned people onto home detention. We could have released people onto home detention or curfews that were over their parole date. There's a range of things we could have done very safely and responsibly to reduce the amount of people currently sitting inside and the pressure that that would put on the public health system and the broader community if there was a serious outbreak inside. Actually, in in Victoria, uh, we're in stage four lockdown at the moment and Mm. we have a five-kilometre radius. So we're not able to go out of five kilometres unless we're going to essential work or essential medical appointments. And they could have done that for for people in prison as well. Absolutely. You know, and having them in the comfort and safety of their own home where they would be safe from contracting the coronavirus. Yep, correct. Because the health of people in prison is a public health issue. And I think that that that's the way we should have been looking at this right from the start, is that the prison population is an extremely important and vulnerable population. We should have been putting extra care into those spaces. But we didn't. Indeed. Mm. We didn't, and let's, let's see if we can watch this space and see, we'll see what's going to happen with that. Now, yeah. it's approximately 4.52, in case listeners have just tuned in. This is the Do and Time show, and at 3CR, and we're interviewing Tabitha Lean about her lived experience of prison and looking at the pandemic as well. Now, we've only got, I'd say, a couple of minutes left. Do you want to finish up by reading your poem, one of your poems, or do you want to just make some final... Whatever you'd like. No, look, I'll read a poem. It's a short one. Um, Okay. It's called Hands Up. Go for it. Lying in the darkness, she had grown to fear. Cocooned in the loneliness, she had grown to know. She figured she was in some kind of shock. No, not a day's shock so much as denial. She went about her days as though nothing was happening, straining extra hard for normalcy, but falling just short of achieving it. Everything was just a bit different than yesterday. Nothing drastic, just the little things. Her food tasted a little strange. The air smelled a little different. She lost all awareness of time. She'd been left alone, sitting in miserable silence, watching the world flash by her window. It felt like she was the butt of a cruel joke or a plot to which everyone was privy but her. And tonight, the quiet scared her because it screamed the truth. So she lay in bed, quilt pulled up to her neck and listened. She listened to the rhythm of her own fear because the sorrow, well, it was never-ending, only amplified by this isolation. It had gotten into her pores, her teeth, her bones. Some days it's all she could do just to breathe through it. She knew her brain had created unhappiness ruts in it like tunnels bore into soft tofu. And like a diligent soldier, she just trundled back and forth morning and night, over and over the same terrain of torment. She thought to herself that maybe she had gotten so used to being unhappy that she'd forgotten what real happiness felt like. Is that why the colours had no discernible hue anymore? Oh yes, she was so far below ground level that just breathing felt like too much work. Fear was shrinking her spirit and she knew that there would come a time where she would have to choose between turning the page and closing the book. But tonight was not that night. 
no, not tonight. She closed her eyes tight and thought, if the sky was indeed going to fall down, then she better brace herself and hold her hands up. That's that. <laughs> oh, Tabitha. Unbelievable, all good. And that, that was a very incredible poem. Thank Actually, you. did you write that in prison? No, I, I wrote that coming home. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, thank you, thank you, Tabitha, for coming onto the show. Thank and you for having me. Yeah, and it's it's just been it's always great having you on. And I know I've been asking you a lot more often than usual, but I, I've just felt that you've had a lot to contribute. And so, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great rest of the day. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. And you're back with the Doing Time show. We've got about one minute left, and we're going out with our theme, theme song now, Black Fella, White Fella from the Rumpy Band. Stay safe, everybody, and tune in every Monday from 4 to 5 for the Doing Time Show. Take care. Bye.